How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. Welcome to Locked on NBA Podcast. I'm David Locke. Thanks so much for tuning in. This is a show I'm excited about. Jackie McMullen and Sean Grande. Jackie McMullen is, Mac is just one of the best. Uh, she's written Gina Oriyama's Larry Bird's biography. She wrote an incredible book about magic and Larry, uh, when the game was ours. If you haven't read it, you're an NBA fan. You should Shaq's autobiography. So you've seen her on ESPN around the horn and pardon the eruption. And she's just fabulous. And we're going to talk about greatness with her and, uh, how it relates to Steph and what she sees with a common thread amongst all these great players and great coaches and, uh, others of the sort. So that is, uh, coming up. She's in the basketball hall of fame. That's all you need to know. She's, Terrific. Sean Grande is, uh, in my mind, the best announcer in the NBA. One of the best. I think he's just terrific. And uh, we'll talk NBA with him. And lastly, we are sponsored today by SeatGeek. I'm so excited to bring SeatGeek onto the program. I'll tell you more about SeatGeek coming up in a few moments. But let's jump right in with someone I'm just so f- flattered to have on the show, Jackie McMullen. Welcome to Locked On NBA. Jackie McMullen is with us. I'm just such a treat. ESPN writer, great author, one of the really true best NBA people, uh, and also groundbreaker. I'm for, blushing, I'm blushing, okay, I'm blushing. Good. And for those of us who are dads of daughters, we're thankful for all you have done along the way. And my wife was a journalist right. as well, so she certainly is thankful. Oh, you married well, David. You married well. Uh, you. you have done so many great things. One of my favorite books was, you know, when the game was ours with Larry and Magic. You did a Geno book. You've done, you've, I can do the list. Is there a common thread when you think of these personalities and think of the greatness amongst all of these kind of one-of-a-lifetime people that you've done books on and dug deep on? Yeah, that's a good question, and, and you know there is, and I'll tell you what it is. Every one of them, as confident they are, and you just listed some of the most confident, some would say arrogant people on the face of the planet, right? Every single one of them has this little thing in the back of his head that there might be somebody better than me. You know, I did a book with Shaq, and it was always Alonzo Mourning. Is he better than me? You know, with Larry, it was Magic. With Magic, it was Larry. With Gino Arama, it was Pat Summit. And they all had this one person in their head that whenever they thought, okay, well, I'm done for the day. Well, wait a minute. What would Larry do? Well, wait a minute. What would Pat Summit be doing right now? So that's the thing that, um, that I found very fascinating about all these great, great, great athletes and coaches. So... I've always had a theory on a lot of these coaches, this is particularly coaches, Mm -hmm. that they're fine until they buy their own myth. And then they somewhat self-destruct. It's all ego, right? It's all ego. And, you know, it's funny you talk about this because we were just talking about Rick Pitino the other day, you know, who came in here as one of the great coaches in the game. They had a literally had a coronation here. Literally. That's what it was. And I was up there, the Grand Poobah, and the first thing he did was demote Red Arback. So you must feel pretty confident about yourself to do that. And, of course, by the time he left here, he faxed in his resignation, faxed it in after a loss and said, well, I'll be back to have a press conference to explain. Still waiting. And the only reason I can tell you that story is think about 
a, you went from a king to a pauper, literally. The coronation to he was one of the most reviled people in Boston sports history. And, uh, and so that's all ego, right? That's believing your own clippings. That's thinking that you're bigger than Red Arback, that you're bigger than everybody, and nobody is. And that's why Brad Stevens is so successful here. Is there an element where a player does not buy his own myth because there's always someone shooting at him much more than a coach? Sure, and I think you know, the truly great ones are never convinced they've done everything they can do. And uh, it's kind of like always reaching for that carrot, and you're always just a little bit further away. You can never quite grab it. And uh, in my experience with all these guys, now some of them, like Shaq, Charles, um, they're like, yeah, I see the carrot, but um, I got a potato right here. I'm good. And there's nothing wrong with that. They were both amazing players, Hall of Famers. Shaq's about to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. But, the, the, you know, the truly Michael Jordan, I was just talking to Jordan the other day because I'm doing a Kobe story. And Jordan and Kobe, like, they're still trying to reach the carrot and Jordan hasn't played in I don't know how long so one of the most interesting books that's out right now is a book called Mindset mm-hmm. and it talks about the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset and you can be successful at both but the growth mindset leads to much longer success mm-hmm. Kobe to me is a very fixed mindset guy as successful he's been he's never been able to change his mindset even today he still wants to be the man every day where do you think of in Magic and Larry and some of these other guys of whether they were fixed or growth mindset? Well, first of all, I'm going to disagree with you about Kobe um, because this piece that will be out in, I believe, next month's ESPN magazine, but I'm still new to that, so don't quote me on that. But his his public way of going about things as opposed to his private way, I found, discovered, was very different. Um, My story is all about him tapping into all the great legends of the game going down and spending uh, five hours with Akeem and learning how to play in the post, calling Larry Bird and talking to him about managing personalities, spending the day with Bill Russell about knowing when you need to step back and let others step forward, and all these great players. Uh, something I've watched him do through the years, and uh, as Akeem said to me, I said, you know, there's this perception he's this egotist and it's all about him. And he said, well, the guy that came to my gym in Katy, Texas, was extremely respectful and humble because I knew something he didn't know. He said, if you were the egotist, you never would have come here because you already knew everything. Interesting. Give me I your... just gave away my whole story, so no, make no. sure you buy the magazine. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to... This was actually... I planned to ask you this yeah. already, so if it's delving okay. too much in the story. Knowing Larry and Magic as you got to know them, how do you see Kobe's farewell tour? What's your perspective on Well, that? I can tell you... Larry wouldn't, well, he didn't. I mean, Larry knew he was retiring. He knew he was retiring that whole year. And um, I talked to him at length about it. And when his career was over, they were playing the Cleveland Cavaliers. They lost very unremarkably in the playoffs. Of course, he could barely walk by that point. He, you know, had back fusion surgery within a year and a half. And he picked up the ball and he put it in his gym bag. And that was it. And that's how he prefers it. Uh, Magic didn't get the chance to make that decision because of the HIV-positive diagnosis and the retirement and then coming back and retiring again. But he probably would have been more on the side of Kobe, and I'm not going to criticize anybody for that. You know, if you have achieved greatness, it's up to you how you want to go out. I'm not going to judge anybody. I really am. I'm just not going to. So Tim Duncan's Larry Bird of this era? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question about that. Who knows if it's his, Kevin Garnett's the other one. I mean, I think this is Kevin Garnett's last year, but I've lost $10 to Cedric Maxwell every year saying this is Kevin Garnett's last year, so I give up. Are you going double or nothing at least? <laughs> I am. I am. I really think this is it, but who knows? What do you see out of Steph in this realm? Well, you know, Oscar Robertson, I understand where he's coming from. I understand where these guys are coming from, but they're not being fair. You know, the game has changed. The game is a stretch 
game now, right? It's a stretch game. Can you shoot it? I mean, go back and look at that shot. Andre Roberson is a good defender. He's a good defender. He didn't know he should be picking him up from 40 feet, okay? And that's what's going to happen from now on. So I'm amazed. And I think the reason it's it's catching everybody off guard is because, you know, with Jordan, you knew it. You could look at his face. He was a killer. If he had somebody down on the ground with his, you know, his foot on his neck, he was going to crush his larynx. You know, that's the way Kobe was. I think Steph is that way. He's just kind of kind of cute looking, and he's not physical, and he's not jamming balls down people's necks. Um, but I think he's the same kind of killer. You know, there was a shot in the ABC game the other night, and I rewatched the. Mm-hmm. That was my plane flight movie. So there you go. Golden State, yeah. Oklahoma City. I mean, it's that good. You like rewatch. It was a shot of him that he did not blink for an unnaturally oh, long right? period of time. Oh, that's great. And it yeah. was, and it really, I was surprised that Jeff or Mike didn't say something. They may have had someone in their ear. There's a lot right, of reasons. Right. But it was this. It, it was unusual. I actually went back and rewound it. Wow. That he clearly had an intensity and a focus that as right. he was rechecking. I think it was when he was rechecking in after the ankle. Remember when he was sitting oh, sure. up against yep, the scores? Yep, yep. He just didn't blink. Well, you know, this stuff doesn't happen by accident. I mean, you don't have a season like this. And I mean, he was the MVP the year before. He might be the first. I don't know when the last time there was a unanimous MVP, but he really should be this year. They might win again. I mean, they may win for a long, long time, although we know how fragile that is. Just ask LeBron. So I, I just, I don't know why people think this is um, a streak of luck or, I, I, you got to be kidding me. This kid works at it. That You can't shoot like that unless you work at it. Well, so If we talk X and O, sorry, I mean, there are hmm. you just mentioned we got to pick him up 35. We've had double teams at the rim. Right, right. We've never ever had someone who's stretching the floor we have to double at 30 plus feet. No, absolutely. I mean, he's shooting 50% from 32 feet and beyond. 50%. Are you kidding me? It's unbelievable. And I'm enjoying it. I hope everyone's enjoying it. And, you know, they play the game, I think, the way it should be played, the extra pass. Um, I think they got it from the Spurs, from watching the Spurs that great year when they beat they beat the Heat. They should have beaten them twice. We know that, right? But the next year they came back, and the way they shared the ball, they were they broke every record statistically for the amount of times they passed and all that. And Golden State was watching, and Steve Kerr, who played with the Spurs, was watching. And now San Antonio's going, man, I want to play like Golden State. <laughs> Isn't that funny how that works? It's like a... Big circle. Well, you know what's interesting to a guy who also used to be here, who I know well, is Ray Allen. Mm-hmm. And Ray has the most legendary shot in the history of the NBA, arguably, with the shot. Yep. But he practiced it all the time. And well, if you watch Steph warm up, all these crazy shots, he practiced. Sure. Well, and, you know, as you know, Ray was OCD. He had obsessive-compulsive disorder. And, um, and you know, just to mention the former Chris Jackson, who Phil Jackson brought up and compared to Steph Curry, and everybody went crazy about that. He had Tourette's syndrome. Had to repeat things over and over and over again until he got it right. There's a certain personality to becoming a shooter like that. You know, Bird would come and do I don't know how many shots. I'd be thousands of shots before games. And you can't tell me that Steph Curry hasn't been doing that because he, of course he has, because he's physically not the same as some of those bigger guys. And so he recognized that early enough and probably watched footage of a dad who was a fine, fine player and a fine shooter, but he wanted more and he's created more. It's, it's awesome. It's just awesome. My final question for you maybe sounds strange to someone who's in Boston, mm-hmm. but it feels to me that Larry's gotten lost a little bit. That the greatness, I, th- I think if you ask most people in this generation, if they went back and looked at Larry Bird's numbers, mm-hmm. I don't think they realize he averaged 12 rebounds a game and he was distant. Like right. they, well, th- and he, you know, his scoring on purpose. He, I remember one year um, he was leading the league in scoring, and then all of a sudden 
like precipitously. It just all dropped off, and he was passing, passing, passing. So I remember asking him about it years later, not at that time, and he said, well, I realized no Celtics player had ever led the league in scoring and won a championship, and I wasn't going to be the first. So he said, you know, I need to pass the ball more. He also used to be an exceptional offensive rebounder, and one day Red came up to him and said, you got to stop going for those balls. And Larry said, why? He said, because you're going to burn out your body. He said, you're losing weight every season. He would lose between 10 and 15 pounds over the course of the season. And Red says, we need you to do other things, so you're gonna, I'm going to ask you to stop doing that. So who knows what, you know, how many rebounds he could have had if he kept going. It's fascinating. Why are you writing your book with all your stories? Yeah, no, I don't, not, not, not right now. <laughs> do you have another one coming? Who would coming? read it? Um, I don't know. That, how about that for a cryptic well, every answer? Every author has one coming, and you're I, an author. So I, I really, whether... really haven't written one for a while. My kids were in college. My daughter was playing at a small college in Connecticut here. So now that she's out, she's in graduate school, maybe I'll start to take another look at it. We'll see. But, yeah, thanks so much for the time. And thank you. Love your work. Thank you. Before we're joined by Sean Grande, let me tell you about our sponsor, SeatGeek. Thanks so much to SeatGeek for being the first to sponsor Locked On NBA. It's always the first place I go to look for tickets to a game or a concert. It's really easy. First, you download the free SeatGeek app, and then it compiles all of the tickets available on one site. So I'm in Toronto tonight. Let's say I wanted to go see the Who. Ooh, look, here's a great seat. But wait, it's not a great seat because SeatGeek shows it as a little red dot. It's $169. Over here, I can sit mid-floor to the Who for $107 tonight at a much better ticket for a better value. That's the beauty of SeatGeek. They rank every ticket. Awful deal to amazing deal with little cute dots that tell you where you want to sit and what ticket you want to buy. So download the free SeatGeek app now. Go over to the settings tab, click add a promo code. Locked is your promo code and $20 to you after you make your first ticket purchase just for entering the promo code locked. Free SeatGeek app, promo code locked. It's all the tickets available from other sites in one place. It's graded and it's always honest and upfront. That price for that Who concert is the exact price I would pay. Do it now. Get your free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code LOCKED. Thank you very much to Jackie McMullen for her time. What a fabulous interview. Now we'll move to more current things with Sean Grande, the radio voice of the Boston Celtics. And as you've often heard me say, my favorite tandem with him and Cedric. They keep you laughing and entertained and informed all at the same time. Uh, let's go Eastern Conference big picture to start off. Do you think Cleveland's vulnerable? Uh, I was thinking the other day, because they lost. And by the way, putting Sean Grandy on after Jackie McMullen is just unacceptable. She is the queen. She is the queen. Yeah, I can't can't follow that. There's no circumstance. By the way, I was thinking when LeBron sat out yesterday against Washington, if LeBron ever slips on a banana peel or something crazy happens with LeBron, you literally have nine teams in the East that are all equal, and anything can happen in the Eastern Conference. Uh, I think they're... a vulnerable in the East? I mean, that, that, that's a word that means they could be beat. Sure, they could. I'm not optimistic about it. I really like what Toronto does. There are times the Celtics look really good, and obviously the Celtics had the win in Cleveland a couple of weeks ago, so people got excited about it. Uh, vulnerable only goes so far as LeBron. And I, I don't think they're – I do not see a scenario by which if LeBron is healthy, they don't go to the finals. And frankly, them resting LeBron is the smartest thing they've done all year long. No, there's there's little question about that. I was listening to Ty Lue, who's a great soundbite. We're going to play in our pregame. Ty Lue basically saying, yeah, we miss LeBron. And I'm like, you think? You think you missed him out there yesterday? I mean, has he? We've Durant and Steph put on a show the other night. Uh, have we missed still how great LeBron is? 
I think so. I, I think LeBron and I, I'm not, you know, this obviously predates me being in the league. But the, I remember reading that generally that Michael could have been MVP every year, and it got to the point where people stopped looking at him as the MVP because even though he's the best player, you're looking for that. Hey, Charles Barkley's having a great year in Phoenix. He's having. A, you almost look past him. It's like the LeBron Memorial Award. I mean, you can't argue with Steph at this point. But yeah, when push comes to shove, he's the best player of this generation. He's. It's interesting. I felt that way last year because I actually thought even though LeBron said I thought he was the MVP, yeah. and I would have voted for LeBron for MVP. I don't feel that way this year. I, I really think Steph has taken this to a... Uh, I, I think Steph's having the most dominant season of any player in the history of the NBA offensively. I think something that is as important as MVP, granted we all like our own opinions, I'm what? This is my... It'll be my 18th year voting for MVP. And of the 17 years, I'd say a healthy number. Seven or eight, I voted for somebody that didn't win. I, I think that's been wrong I, more often than it's just as often as wrong as it's been right. It's, I didn't vote for Steve Nash the year Steve Nash was. You know, it's, my first year in the league is how old I am. It was Carl Malone in 99 and I thought Alonzo Mourning should have been the MVP that year. To me, it's uh, it's something that people just kind of get something set in their minds and it's a, it ends up being a puzzling choice often for something that to me should be pretty easy. Is it a group thing? Concept as you're saying, that? yeah, I think it, I think it gets that way. I, I I don't think I think people tend to take that one for granted, and and you and I know how we have people that we know and love that sometimes get those ballots and they just write some names down. Listen, Max last year got heat because he sixth man. He put it in his mind. He thought, all right, there's Jamal Crawford, and there's you know he wrote down some guys and he forgot Isaiah Thomas. So in Boston, of course, the ballots are public now, which I always thought they should have been all along. I always posted mine. I don't know if you do the same thing. But I always thought, vote, this should never be private. If you're, This isn't a general. You know, it's like, geez, John, Donald Trump, this guy voted for This isn't that. This is voting for the MVP. It should be public, who you're voting for. I always thought it should be. And now that it is, people really get caught. You know, people love to comb through that and see who voted for their guy and who didn't. And, yeah, it was a funny thing that happened last year. So some guys take it seriously and some guys don't. It's an interesting concept. I actually, fortunate enough, I actually don't have to vote. You're actually, you're lucky in some ways, yeah. Because I, you know what, and they, they get on me every year. They're like, get your ballot in. I'm like, and when the 82 games are played, I'll get my ballot in. I tend to wring my hands over it because I take it seriously. And maybe I, maybe I should just join the crowd and not take it seriously. But to me, this is the history of the league. And so it, it does matter to me who the who you vote fourth or fifth for MVP because these guys, it, it matters to them. So it should matter to us. Well, what I, the one thing I do love about this is the first team, the thing that gets the least publicity, which is first team, yes. second team, third team. And what I do that is what and that's the one I really dig into because I think it's interesting one is I think we vote for too many guys who don't help you win um, the you know really that's the first one like I got how good DeMarcus Cousins is but until I see him helping a team win I'm not he's not even going to make rookie of the back. year by the way same same deal rookie of the year that we just give it to the rookie that puts up the best stats and not a rookie that's playing how do you measure a guy that got to play 35 minutes a game because his team was awful versus a, a rookie that was a 16 to 18 minute rotation guy on an elite team it, you don't it's not treated the same way as MVP is Plumlee should have been the rookie of the year a few years ago in Brooklyn by, by that standard I mean how is how many most improved votes is Hood going to get but he's in Utah you know he's in Utah you're not really paying attention it's a young team it's not a sexy team you're not, any, you're not ESPN they have the two NBAs there's the Thursday night TNT Sunday afternoon Saturday night ABC NBA and there's the Sacramento Charlotte Tuesday night game NBA and Where's there's Boston that's a great question because you're sort of tiptoeing that line. Boston is, has forced its way back into that NBA a little bit. Uh, you know, you don't have the same. Listen, with Doc, 
you have the sexy head coach element of it. You don't have that here. My joke when we got on national TV for game one of the playoffs is that this is going to be the first time a network switches to a more interesting coach than a more interesting game you know, with Brad Stevens wearing the mic because you're not going to get the same kind of stuff. But you sort of, you know, you're Boston because it's the Celtics has the opportunity to get back into that because of the name. But this is not a team, Isaiah Thomas aside, that has star players. So you don't have you know, that national TV appeal that way. So it's sort of interesting. You do it by, by winning a lot of games. One of my more frustrating things in this league, just because of my personality, probably yours is similar, is the groupthink aspect that we all just, you know, there's a lot of really smart people that think a lot who cover this game in the most impressive fashion. Uh, one of those areas of groupthink sometimes in my mind is that Brad Stevens has just been anointed from day one as a brilliant coach. Now, the more time he's out there, he shows it. And what's interesting, on the inner circles of the league, they say he's better now. But he wasn't this elite coach when he first came in the league compared to the way he was talked about by the media. They became the darling, and now he's probably more deserving of it. What have you seen in his development, and or do you disagree with the concept? How could he be an elite coach the first day he walked in? When he walked in the first night, and we had a rare night, and I know you're going to be talking about our, our horrific broadcast setup situation here in Boston, but in the preseason, sometimes we had a chance to go down to courtside. So his first game, I'm sitting courtside. He didn't know how many timeouts he had. He didn't know where to stand. He didn't know. It was all this other stuff. He stayed himself, true to his personality, and calm and cool during the whole thing. But how could he have been an elite NBA coach when he was walking in cold without having ever been in the league? You're talking about, you know, there, there are guys around the league, Mike Malone. Mike Malone grew up in the NBA because of his dad. So he's been around how many years? Just being around the league. Brad Stevens had never been even around the league. How could he have been an elite coach? I think the Celtics got off to that good start uh, because the division was bad, 12-14, and 14, leading the Atlantic division. So people got into it. They beat LeBron in Miami early in the year. And then everyone kind of went away and stopped losing interest when the Celtics lost like 35 out of 39 games after that. So was it a bad roster? Yeah. Was it Brad learning his place? Yeah. Is he... I thought the start of the second year, like when you're a sophomore in high school and all of a sudden you know where your locker is and you're walking it. So I think from the start of the second year to now, he uh, what's that they say? He is what he say. He is what they say he is. You get the fortunate thing. I get it with our head coaches, Quinn Snyder, who's also brilliant. Uh, to do that nightly interview. I don't know if you do it in person or not, but I, the best part is the five minutes before the interview. What what have you learned about him? What is that makes Brad Stevens special? Well, I'll tell you this. It was hard at first because Brad was not a uh, natural – you know, I'm coming from nine years of Doc Rivers, and what Doc and I was doing was basically a show. It was like competitive with any radio show in the Boston market, what we would do in the back and forth and the banter and just killing each other every day for nine years. But Brad, I go in uh, – one of the first games he did – and Doc and I would talk about pop culture and sports, anything that was going on to make it entertaining. The Richie Incognito story happens in Miami that day. It's all over Sports Center. It's the number one story in sports. I get to Brad that night, and this is a story that affects sports. It's about coaches and locker rooms. And I was like, oh, we're good to talk about the Richie Incognito thing. He said, no, no, what happened? And it was like that old SNL sketch. Like, Kennedy got shot? What do you mean? You know. So he is... Into he can do pop culture before his coaching career starts. If you want to do an Austin Powers joke, one million dollars, he's totally into it. But there's a moment when his life his life shut off. Um, so I've worked pretty hard to find the real. But he is just a genuine guy. And what I didn't know about Brad, what I was not skeptical is the wrong word, but I didn't know how would NBA players, veteran NBA players, react to him. And they got such a kick out of his preparation. The sort of lack of ego, it's not about, listen, there are coaches in this league where it is about them, and there are coaches in this league where it's not. In this day and age, he, he just came with great preparation, great personality, just genuine, 
Indiana. He is Indiana basketball in every way there is, and players play for him, and they respect him. But this is what people miss about the NBA, and this is the, the NBA players, not anywhere near what the media portrays them to be. I mean, one, they've given their entire lives, every aspect of their entire life to play in this game. You and I were talking about our kids, and I was like, I want my kid to be happy. I'm not even sure how many of these players are per se happy because of the pressure and the focus and how much they've given up, really, all of them from age 13 probably have given up every minute of whatever natural life they're going to have to be here. They just don't want to fail, and they want to get better. That, that to me, is what most of these guys, there are exceptions who have decided to take their money and whatever, but those are exceptions, not the rule. None of us who are on any kind of stage like this or who happen to be elite, if you're elite at what you do, you've had a normal life. You've made sacrifices to get there. Billy Joel may be, in the view of some people and myself, you know, as a lifelong fan who idolized him growing up, you know, the greatest pop singer, the greatest musician of all time, he can't drive to, the, to get a bagel without hitting a tree. Okay, Aaron Sorkin may be the greatest screenwriter of all time, and he's getting pulled over in airports, and he said, so there's, a, there's something that comes with being extreme, and these are extreme athletes who have spent their whole lives. This is the best of the best. We can sit here and joke all we want about you know, Anthony Bennett and the guys in the league at the bottom of the league and the 12th man in the roster, and Scal, who made a career out of being the last guy in the roster for 11 years. Yeah, he's the last guy in the roster in the greatest league in the world with – thousands upon thousands of kids wanting that spot so yeah i think we're all just a little bit you know everything's a little bit off but most people who are on stage in any capacity in sports and entertainment whatever uh we're probably not on stage because we were the most normal had the most normal lives to and the uniqueness to what these guys deal with is that someone's trying to dunk on them every night billy joel could be tired putting on a set but no one's trying to humiliate them him while he's doing it. aaron sorkin can have a bad writing day he gets to erase it and rewrite it you know whatever these guys Except for Twitter. Twitter's the exception to that, but yeah. But these guys are, someone's trying to humiliate them yeah. every night. Yeah, it's a, listen, this is an ultra-competitive world. These are ultra-competitive people. You ever spend any time around a professional athlete and you end up, professional athlete, play cards with one, play tiddlywinks with one, they tear your throat out because that's what they've had to do their whole life to get to the spot that they're in. So right, I love awesome. your basketball mind. We'll wrap up on this. I don't know if you can do this off the top of your head. Players that are better than people talk about in this league. Who are the players that you watch and you think to yourself, they should be getting more love? They're better than they. They help you win in a way people don't talk about. Half of your roster, um, certainly in Utah. I, you know what? You know what's interesting about that question? The fact that I think that's starting to change. Here's one thing I think about. The, you talk about the basketball mind, the way I'm seeing things. We had the age of the dominant center. Five, six years ago, we had the age of the dominant point guard. It's Westbrook and it's you know all these guys at the same time Chris Paul and we've had this shift now to the Draymond Green Jimmy Butler Kawhi Leonard Jay Crowder thing and that to me is has two, there's a twofold element to that it's made those guys now you know the elite players that's the position everybody has to have but it's also I think it's making guys look at the way you're asking that question and say who are the I, I don't think it's as under the radar anymore because now People look at a Jay Crowder. You know, th- a year ago in this town, this was a 30 for 30 show. What if I told you the Celtics would trade Rajon Rondo for Jay Crowder and far and away get the better of the deal? That was inconceivable. 
But I think that and those guys now becoming elite players is making people look differently at you know who's playing and who's not. And the other trend going on right now, the last two games here, the Celtics have seen Greg Monroe coming off the bench, Whiteside coming off the bench, and your team, obviously Utah, just plays differently from everybody else on, in a variety of different ways. But now we're starting to see the bigs not being able to get in games, not being able to start because everybody's had to adjust, and now they're the change of pace guys coming off the bench. And David Lee, here's the week. David Lee could not get on the floor for the Celtics. Here's a week David Lee had two weeks ago. DNP Wednesday, White House Thursday to meet the president because they won a championship, and then DNP Friday because he couldn't get off the bench to play. Well, that's And he still probably could play if we played the old way. He just doesn't go outside 16 feet. And so, what, what he, and he's not quick enough defensively. No, it's... The playmaking four is the future. Uh, we actually think, I think we have one in Trey Lyles, the Jazz do. The other one I still think, as funny as this is, and this is going to switch, I think J.J. Reddick's the most underrated player in the league. You know, everyone talks about, oh, my gosh, they're winning without Blake. They're winning without Well, it's just J.J. Reddick. The guy who can shoot seven, eight threes a game and make them is still peaking out on value. Well, here's the trend under the, under the Reddick umbrella. Guys come in the league, and then in their first two or three years, they don't become all-stars. Everybody looks away. And they forget that they're 21 and 22 years old and that they're still, we, we get so fascinated with the draft being the snapshot. Okay, everything begins on draft night. Okay, this guy's the fifth pick, so he's better than the guy's the ninth pick. When not only is the race still running, that line where we have to make that draft comes earlier and earlier now. And these guys are 18, 19, 20 years old. And who's going to be good at 25, 26, and 27? Here at the trade deadline, everybody was talking about Al Horford and Dwight Howard and whatever. And the only thing I said when people were going crazy about names is, why not start thinking about who's going to be an all-star two years from now as opposed to two years ago? On that note, create your list of those guys. Sean, thank you very much. The NBA Twitter king right here, David Locke. Sean Grande, Jackie McMullen, White, quite a podcast. Thanks very much for tuning in to Locked on NBA. You can give us five stars on iTunes or wherever you're watching. We'd greatly appreciate it. Have a super day.